guys. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of NBA Stories. I'm your host, Nick Nassaby, and I am super, super grateful and excited to be here right now. This is going to be a really interesting episode. It's something that I wanted to cover for a while, and I think that you guys are going to enjoy it. It's it, 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 For the younger listeners, this is going to be a person that you recognize. If you read the title or read the description, you know who I'm talking about already, so I'm not going to go too far into that. But before I go into it, I, I really want to thank you, anybody who's listening to this right now, for all of the support I've been getting. It, there's been reviews coming in. There's been people following the Instagram page, at NBA Stories Pod. And people have been reaching out and telling me that they, they like what I'm doing. And so do I. I like what I'm doing, too. I, I do this for fun. I do this because I enjoy it. And anybody who wants to go along on that ride with me, you're more than welcome to. And, and I'm super stoked. I have learned in the past week that we have listeners in other countries, which is awesome. Right now, we're represented in Brazil, in Hong Kong, Ireland, Australia, Canada, France, Serbia, Hungary, Belgium, UAE, and of course, the United States. How awesome is that? How amazing that people are coming from all walks of life to listen to me talk about basketball. Like, who cares usually, right? But I'm... I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm okay with that. Uh, I just like talking about basketball. And tonight, like I said, we're going to be covering somebody who has really shaped the league and the game of basketball more than anybody has ever, probably since the 60s, probably since a Wilt Chamberlain came in and, and literally made us change the rules for him. This is somebody who is the genesis of the style of player that we see today. He is the epitome of of what it means to be a game changer. So when I was in eighth grade, I my aunt and my uncle live in North Carolina. Back in those days, they lived out in the western part of North Carolina in uh, an area off of Lake Lure out there. And so we would go and see them every once in a while, and we drove down one time. And when I was there, my parents, who are super proactive, they wanted to go on a college search because they were like, when's the next time we're going to get down to North Carolina? And not too far away from that, from that, from their house was Davidson College, and this was 2008. And so I was going to this college to take a tour, and we were walking by the athletic center, and I saw this guy talking to I think it was a reporter, maybe two of them, and he didn't really look that big. He didn't look that he didn't look that domineering. He wasn't really striking resemblance. And I didn't even recognize it until later on when I asked somebody and they said, yeah, that was Steph Curry. That was Steph Curry. He just stood, he was just there, you know? And the, it's, the incredible part about it is that a big, a big topic that I'm going to go into today is why is he different from the rest? And that is the exact reason why he's different from the rest. He doesn't stand out. Not, not physically at least. And I made the point in an earlier episode about what Charles Barkley talked about when he said that I'm not a role model and everybody gave him grief for it, but it makes a whole lot of sense. He's not a role model. Your kid's not going to be 6'5". Your kid's probably not going to be 240 pounds. He's probably not going to be as athletic as a Charles Barkley. He's probably not going to run the floor as well as a Charles Barkley. And there's a very good chance because of those things, he won't make the NBA. And so for Charles Barkley, it was a bad way to word it, but he, the, his point was, he's not going to be like me. He's not going to be seven foot one, 320 pounds like Shaq. 
He's not going to be six foot eight like LeBron or six six like Kobe. It's just not realistic to think that. But when we look at Steph Curry, he looks like me. He looks like us. There's no there's no physical differences there. And so that is the immediate difference that is important to recognize about Steph and about what he was able to do. He is someone who took a play style that at the time of his drafting was completely incompatible with the NBA. He dropped to the seventh overall pick in a very stacked draft, by the way. But he dropped to seven overall because nobody really knew what to do with him. They didn't think he was a point guard. They didn't think he was a shooting guard. He was too small to play two, and he, was, he wasn't talented enough at point guard to play point guard, which obviously is not the case anymore. But ultimately, because of those, those, that era, he was what we considered a tweener. And a tweener was the worst thing you could get called back then because we lived in a position-based basketball game where there was a one, a two, a three, a four, and a five. And if you did not fall into one of those, then you didn't have a place on the court. And so a lot of people had a choice of adapting. They had to adapt to the environment around them. And the difference between Steph Curry and those people is that instead of adapting, Steph Curry got so good at what he did that he required everybody else to adapt to him. He is the genesis of what the style of play is today. He was the nucleus. He created this himself. He changed what it means to take a good shot. He changed what the definition of a good shot was. He changed the ending of a fast break and what's acceptable to end a fast break with. And so because of that, I don't see any other word that describes him other than a complete and utter game changer. He is what has shaped the NBA as we see it. Now, before I go into his timeline and his life, it's important to understand what created this type of mentality with him. Because, it, and, and, and to, to start off, I'm going to take you all the way back to 1979. And if you follow the Instagram, you saw I posted a, a video from the first ever three-point shot that was made. And you could see how janky the shot looked. The, the form was off. Nobody really learned to shoot from distance back then. Why would they? That's the focus of the NBA in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. Is get to the basket. I remember when I was playing basketball in middle school, one of the coaches that I had was very adamant in saying that the goal of basketball is to get as close to the basket as possible before you release the ball and try to shoot. And a lot of people had that mindset. That was the only practical mindset of anybody of those days. So why would someone want to learn to shoot from distance? If somebody was born in the 60s and they played in the 80s and the 90s, that means that all of their early tutelage in the game of basketball was from people who were alive in the 60s and old enough in the 60s to teach them how to play basketball. And those people were probably playing basketball in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. These are going to be people who have absolutely no concept of a three-point shot. And why is that? Because what is the genesis of the three-point shot to begin with, you might be asking. The, the first signs of a three-point shot really showed themselves in the ABA. And if you know anything about the ABA, that was the, competitive, the competing league in the 70s and the 60s. 
the ABA was at a disadvantage because they were going up against the established league of the NBA. So they had to add certain things to make their game a little bit more showy, a little bit more fun to watch. And so they did that with a red, white, and blue colored ball and a three-point shot. And so you had these guys who were coming from the ABA to the NBA, and they have a little bit more distance on their jump shots. Pete Maravich is a good example. Rick Barry is a good example. These are guys who were able to utilize that in that league and come to the NBA where it's not there yet, but they're still able to shoot from range. A lot of people don't know this, but somebody like Jerry West, somebody like Pistol Pete, these are guys who could shoot from deep all the time, and they did. They just, it, no one knows that because one, there's not a whole lot of highlight films on either one of those guys. And number two, they're getting counted the same as any shot from in, in close. So it doesn't really matter how far they're shooting from. So ultimately, because of that mentality, the practical thought and the rational thought is you get as close to the basket as you can. And so when the NBA established this three-point shot, because nobody in the league had been raised on that shot, it didn't really take a full effect yet. You see Larry Bird, and everybody thinks Larry Bird, he was a shooter, he was a shooter, but he would shoot maybe to a game. And it's crazy for us to even think that today, that somebody who is so revered as a shooter would only shoot about two or three threes a game. And the reason why, again, is that it really wasn't a difference-making shot. It really wasn't efficient. No, Nobody could shoot the three at a 40% plus clip. Bird was at 20, 25 to 30% with his career. Nobody was able to shoot from those kind of distances. And I think that's a big argument that people try to make from the old NBA to the new NBA which is an argument that I, I will go into in, in later episodes. But for now, what I want to talk about is that all of these teams at this point would have a shooter, right? They would have a shooter. Craig Hodges on the Bulls, on Jordan's early Bulls. Steve Kerr, Jim Paxson on the, on the later Bulls. And then there was you know somebody like Chris Mullen who was able to do more, but he was ultimately a, a very good shooter as well for those Warriors teams in the early 90s. And you see this being the case for a lot of teams. They would get one guy whose job was to come off the bench or maybe be on, on the starting lineup, but most likely a six-man or, or, or a role player, and he's the shooter. He's coming off the bench and shooting, very similar to a Kyle Korver. What Kyle Korver was doing early on his, in his career in, in Philadelphia, that's exactly what we would see for a lot of teams. And so one of these guys on a few different teams, the Cavaliers and the Hornets and the Raptors went by the name of Del Curry. And obviously you can tell that's Steph's dad. And Del was one of these early adopters of the three-point shot where he came into the league and he, he was already known as the guy who was going to shoot threes. And so that's what they used him for. And by the time he retired, he actually had the record for the highest three-point field goal percentage of all time. That was eventually taken over but that's what his record was when he left and so this is the world that Steph Curry is born into he was born in Cleveland in 88 when when Dell was on the Cavaliers Dell gets traded to the Hornets he spends the majority the bulk of his career on that Hornets team with like Muggsy Larry Johnson Lonzo Mourning those are you know very very solid Hornets teams of, of the 90s and he was the shooter on that team 
And so Steph is growing up, the ball boy. He's with a bunch of these NBA players. He's surrounded by them from a very early age. He's surrounded by the NBA. And his dad is teaching him how to play the game. And he's teaching him how to play the game the way his dad plays the game. So you can see where I'm coming with this, is that his dad was not raised with someone who taught him how to shoot threes. The players in the 90s were not raised with people who taught them how to shoot threes, but Steph Curry was. His dad was the shooter, and so he's growing up knowing the benefits of a three-point jump shot, of understanding what it means to be a sharpshooter and how important it is to be a sharpshooter and what that can mean for anybody to get good at shooting from deep especially in the NBA where the three-point line is now being an established threat and something that a defender would have to pay attention to, something that the defense would have to game plan around, which wasn't the case at that time. Fast forward to the 90s and to the 2000s, now we have someone like Reggie Miller who's coming into the league. And I hate Reggie, don't get me wrong. Stupid jump shot, stupid fucking wristbands. I, I couldn't stand Reggie Miller's stupid ears. Ugh. Everything about him made me so angry, but he was a great shooter. It's really all there is to it. He was a great shooter. And he carried the Pacers teams as a shooter, and he also did a lot more than just shoot, but that's really what his, his forte was, was he was a jump shot guy. And so he was one of the first early ad- adopters of the of the three-point shot as well. And then the early 2000s comes along, and now we have somebody like Peja Stojakovic. We have Ray Allen coming in, who still holds the record for threes until Steph breaks it. And then we have the first case of what we see pretty much universally today of the center or the big man who shoots from deep in a Dirk Nowitzki. Now, we would have seen that earlier if Arvidas Sabonis played in the NBA, but because of the Soviet Union and the restrictions of the Soviet Union, we did not get to see him until he was old and decrepit and it didn't really matter anymore. But Dirk comes into the league and all of a sudden nobody really knows what to do because this is really the first case of a big man, a a true seven-footer, who we actually have to respect from the three-point line. It hadn't happened up to that point. So the three-point shot is starting to become more dangerous, more, more ingrained into the league. But in the 2000s, we're still seeing a game the way that it, the way that it was for the entirety of the, of the history of the NBA. It goes point guard, shooting guard as a wing, small forward the other wing, power forward probably high post or two post, two low post with a four and a five, and the five is the center. If you're a point guard, you facilitate the offense, you shoot when you have to. If you're a shooting guard or a small forward, you're going to be the slasher, you're going to get to the basket, you're going to shoot for mid-range, and you're going to shoot a few threes once in a while. If you're the four, you're gonna sh- you're gonna be a high post. You might shoot some mid rangers, but your 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 job, your goal is to beat them with your footwork. And the five man is doing the same thing, usually a little bit lower down, usually a little bit of a bigger guy, rim protection. That's really what was important there. And, and this is the the game that Steph was raised on, also, where the three point shot is important, but you're it's not gonna overtake anything that's happening right now. Steph grows up in Charlotte with his brother, Seth, who's also in the league right now. And his dad goes up to play in Toronto for a few years, but they stay in Charlotte so he can have one home as he grows up. And he was not very daunting in high school. I mean, he's not very daunting now, but he definitely wasn't back then. So as he was going through high school, he was developing this three-point shot. He was already a great shooter. He was already doing these things at a relatively high level, but colleges were really overlooking him they considered him to be undersized, and, and he was undersized. 
in in high school, but he was playing in a school in Charlotte. wasn't He wasn't getting sought after by the schools in North Carolina. Strictly, really, because of his size, he he was underdeveloped at that point as well. His his ball handling wasn't immaculate. His passing wasn't immaculate. His vision wasn't immaculate. He really was just a great shooter at that point. Because I mean, that's really something that you have to kind of have from a young age, and that really is what he had is is a great three point shot. The school that obviously gave him the chance to play there is Davidson College, and when he got to Davidson. He immediately, immediately made a huge impact. His freshman year, he broke the freshman scoring record in February at that school. He averaged over 20 points a game every single year that he played at that school. But people didn't notice him yet until his sophomore season. And this is that magical year that if you were around back then and you remember it, you know exactly what I'm talking about when he took that Davidson team and he carried them on his back to the elite eight over some really really tough teams in that tournament they went 26 and 6 they were the 10 seed they go in against the 7 seed Gonzaga Steph ended up dropping 40 in that game he dropped 30 in the second half he hit eight threes and he beat them pretty much by himself he beat them and then they go on and they beat second seeded Georgetown which I loved My mother and I watched that game. I remember that so vividly because we hate Georgetown. And we were like, who is this Steph Curry kid? I really like him. He just did that to to my least favorite team in the world. It's fantastic. And they go to the Sweet 16 and they play Wisconsin in the Sweet 16. And, And Steph drops 33 against Wisconsin, another really, really tough team to play, right? And he's dropping 33 in that game. And they win to go to the Elite Eight. And he was the story of that entire of that entire tournament. They didn't win the championship. They lost the next game against Kansas. But he had firmly placed himself on the map. And there was nobody that watched basketball, that cared about basketball, that could say that I don't know who Steph Curry is. For a month, he was the most famous player on the planet. Not named LeBron James or Kobe Bryant. Everybody knew Steph Curry. Everybody wanted to know who Steph Curry was. And he comes in his junior year, and he's already recognized his, his junior year. And Steph goes on. He's, he averages 28 a game his junior year. You know, he And obviously, he wasn't playing against the best competition, but he scored 2,488 points in his career at Davidson, which is an absurd feat. As a Syracuse fan, I know that scoring 1,000 points in, in, a, in a college career is very hard. So scoring almost 2,500 points in three years, it's stuff of legends. And that's what he became. He became a college basketball legend. But this was the time frame where we were seeing guys who were college legends and they would go to the league and they would absolutely sputter out. This is about, I want to say, three years after Adam Morrison, where he went up against J.J., and J.J. is still contributing in the league today. He wasn't a star. And nobody thought he was going to be a star. But Adam Morrison was the third overall pick. And nobody expected him to be as bad as he was. But he was as bad as he was. And he faded out of the league in about two or three years. So that's the kind of transition that we're seeing from college to the NBA. There is a huge talent gap to get from college basketball 
to the NBA. And so when he declared for the draft, everybody wanted Steph Curry because it was very interesting to have a guy who could shoot like this. But as a, as a, as a front office guy for one of these teams, you have to look at the intangibles and you have to look at the game as it was in 2009. What was the league like in 2009? It's exactly what I was saying it was before. It was one, two, three, four, five. Positionless basketball was just a concept that Mike D'Antoni tried with the Suns in the 2000s, the mid-2000s, that kind of worked, but only really worked because of who he was using. So this idea that Steph Curry could assimilate into the NBA was overshadowed by the fact that he wasn't really a point guard and he was too small to play the two. And he wasn't a slasher. And he gets drafted 7th overall, which of course is very high. And he goes to this Golden State Warriors team, which had at that point been such a, a, a joke for so long. In the mid-2000s, they had Baron Davis and Monte Ellis and all of these guys. And they beat the Utah Jazz with Andre Kirilenko and Darren Williams and Carlos Boozer. And everybody thought it was a big deal because they never won. The, the Warriors were just not, they weren't winners. And they had this fan base that constantly came out to their games. And they still came even though the team never won. And so everybody was always so into seeing a team like this win. So when they beat the Jazz that one year, it was huge. It was huge. It was the We Believe Warriors because nobody believed in them except them. And they won. And then they obviously lost the next round. But Steph Curry got drafted. The seventh overall to that team. Mark Jackson was the coach at the time. And it was him and Monte Ellis, and they and, and to everybody else, they looked very similar to one another. Monte wasn't the shooter that Steph was, but Steph wasn't the slasher that Monte was, and neither one of them were really point guards, so where do you put them both? And that was the conundrum that we ran into. And so he had his ankle issues in the beginning, but he really did, he really did put a really big impact on that team right away. He was averaging almost 18 points a game as his rookie season. He was the runner-up for Rookie of the Year that year. You know, he was on the all-rookie first team. And he, he was proving a lot of people, including myself, wrong. I, I really didn't see Steph Curry being a, a, a consistent contributor to the NBA, and that's exactly what he became right away. His ankles started to give out on the second and third year, which kind of speculated to people saying, okay, this is kind of where it goes for him. It's going to go with the ankles because that's usually an injury that consistently repeats itself. And that was the worry for everybody. It's like, oh God, here he goes. He's going to get hurt. He's going to keep getting hurt. And now we're not going to be able to see this very exciting young player progress into, into his own for the rest of his career. He signs a new contract before 2012, 2013, which people really didn't think was a good idea because he was getting hurt like that. But at that point, we were starting to see a different version of Steph Curry. And to to his benefit, he never really had the ankle thing persist, which is great. It was him and now it was Clay Thompson as well. And as they started to grow together, they're starting to get this comparison now to Ray Allen and Richard Lewis in Seattle back in the mid-2000s because they weren't really going anywhere in the playoffs, but these two were both two of the best shooters in the league on the same team. 
and nobody really knew what to do because when one was going off, then the other one was kind of taking a step back. And when the other one was going off, then the other one took a step back. And then there was games where they both went off. And this was already happening, and Steph was only 24, 25 years old. And so was Clay at the time, too. So these, these two young shooters who are really coming into their own in the NBA. And they're, and they're playing off of each other very well. And, it, and it's scaring people, but they're, they're still beatable because it's just those two. And, you know, I mentioned the, the Suns earlier, and it wasn't just because of D'Antoni. Because from 2004 to 2010, a certain gentleman was involved in the Phoenix Suns organization, started off as a consultant, moved into president of basketball operations and the GM, and that, of course, was Steve Kerr. And so Steve Kerr was really involved in that small ball run-and-gun team back in those days to get the personnel that Mike D'Antoni needed to, to get them working as well as they could. And that mindset is exactly what the Warriors needed to find. And so they hire him. At that point, he was an announcer. You, if you had 2K back then, you know that Steve Kerr was one of the announcers on that. And he was doing that, I think, for TNT as well. But they hired him as their head coach. And it was a brilliant move by the front office of the Golden State Warriors because that was right around the time that they signed or they drafted uh, Draymond Green out of Michigan State. Now, it was a little bit earlier that they got Draymond Green, but Draymond was a four-year guy out of Michigan State. And he was another household name by his senior year. Everybody knew that he was Tom Izzo's guy, that he was very dangerous, but nobody really knew what his contribution was going to be when he got to the NBA. And so he gets to the league, and he's a six foot seven, another tweener, right? Now they have two tweeners, what we would have called tweeners back then. He's six seven, he's too small to play four, and he's too big to play three. He has all of the assets of a four, but he's not big enough to handle an, a, a traditional power forward back then, or so we thought. So we see this, and we see Steve Kerr, and all of a sudden we're seeing this all come together. And nobody, nobody anticipated this until Draymond came into his own. Because now we have this guy who is scoring maybe 9 to 12 points a game. He's getting uh, 8 to 10 assists, and he's getting like 11 rebounds. So he's getting all of these triple doubles that nobody anticipated. And this is right after LeBron has now left the Heat. So now he's back in Cleveland. And the NBA was ripe for a new dynasty. But you can't build a dynasty around it without having a star to build it around. And Steph Curry was that guy. And why Steph Curry instead of a Clay Thompson? Because Clay's got it just as nice of a jump shot as Steph, if not better. It's purer. He's got the most consistent form in the NBA, maybe even in NBA history. If you see his shot, it is exactly the same every single time. Immaculate. Well, Steph did something that we've never really seen done before. He was shooting from range, which is huge, but he was also shooting off the dribble. And this is something that was new because typically if a point guard's going to be a scorer it's because he gets to the basket, you know, look at Derrick Rose, look at Russell Westbrook. These are guys that were able to, to get theirs in terms of points, but it's because they could penetrate and get to the basket. Now this is a point guard who could 
penetrate. He could get to the rim. He wasn't above the rim. He was very good at angling and getting the English off of the backboard and all of those different things. But what Steph was able to do is take a step back behind the three-point line where nobody's really willing to guard him yet, and he's pulling up from there. So now this is what we're witnessing is, okay, this kid is actually shooting from 35 feet out. And his coach is allowing him to do that. That was that was the benefit of having Steve Kerr there. Someone who by himself also was a shooter on the Bulls. He was one of those guys. So he understands the benefit of a three-point shot. And so he's allowing Steph to shoot the way that he wants to. And Steph is comfortable from that distance. Nobody knows it yet, but he is comfortable from that distance. And he is more than willing to pull up at any time from that distance. So he's not necessarily averaging more points but he's incredibly efficient. I mean, this is a guy who's never shot less than 40% from three, which for uh, for a shooter of his volume is is absolutely absurd. And he's, he's always been touching around 50% from the field, period. Which again, for a guard to do that is something that a historian, somebody who likes the history of the NBA like myself, is very keen to see because it's not it's not common. It doesn't happen all that much. But he did it, right? And he's done it over and over and over and over again. So this year, he has the freedom. And those two are playing off of each other incredibly. And everybody's starting to see what Klay Thompson can do. And everybody's already seen what Steph can do, but now we're really seeing what Steph can do. And he takes over that 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 team. He becomes their focal point, and they go all the way to the finals. And this is the first against LeBron back in Cleveland. And LeBron now has to play this organic, homegrown team of the of the Warriors, and they beat him. And the Warriors win their first championship, and I think it was like forty years at that point. Everybody was freaking out, going crazy, and it was a big deal because this is the Warriors team. Like I said, just ten years before, nobody really consider this team to be a serious threat at any point and now they're here winning the nba championship against lebron james no nonetheless lebron james Kyrie, kevin love back in cleveland nonetheless and all of a sudden we're seeing this team and they're young and these guys you know there's not a whole lot of age yet so we're thinking to ourselves i'm thinking to myself how far can this go how, how far can this go these guys aren't going anywhere. If they stay healthy, this is a very dangerous, dangerous triple threat. And incredibly, they got even better. In that 2015-2016 season, we witnessed something that I don't think will ever be duplicated unless Steph does it again. I don't think anybody's ever really going to come close to doing what he did, except for, and this is going to be what I talk about, the next wave of players that are growing up watching Steph Curry. Steph goes into the 2015-2016 season fresh off of his first MVP. He was the MVP of the entire league, and everybody and nobody disputed it. He clearly deserved that award. But he's going into this next season, and everybody's like, okay, so let's see if he can do this again. And we see one of the greatest seasons from an NBA player in the entire history of the NBA. You know, the 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 team goes, of course, this is the 70, was it 72 and 10? Warriors, the 2015-2016 season was the 72-10 and 10 Warriors where really nobody could touch him. It was incredible to watch what they were able to do. Steph was shooting from anywhere and everywhere. He didn't really care. He was just doing what he wanted to out there. He had a career high in steals, by the way, this, this year. Nobody really talks about that, which is fine because he averaged 30 a game. He averaged 30 a game, 
And if for anybody who doesn't understand how rare this is, he went 50, 40, 90. So he shot 50% from the field. He shot 40% plus 45%, by the way, from the three. And he shot 91% from the free throw line. It's only been done about five or six times. And nobody has come even close to the volume of three-point shots that he was putting up. The volume of shots, period, that he was putting up. No one has ever come even close to that kind of volume and gone 50, 40, 90. That was one of the most incredible feats that you'll ever see on a basketball court. And he did it on almost the best team ever. Almost the best team ever. And this team goes 72 and 10 behind Steph's 30, almost seven assists a game, 50, 40, 90. He's shooting at a rate of 5 for 11 from 3 average. He's hitting five threes on average a game. An incredible, incredible feat. Just pile it on, you know. He wins the first ever unanimous MVP, which, by the way, you can like Steph Curry, but that's a joke. That's an absolute joke. LeBron deserves an MVP every single year. I don't care what you have to say about it. It just it should be that case. He deserves at least one vote every single year. I don't care if it's from Windhorse. But it should be at least one vote a year because that he is he is the most valuable player usually on the team he's on. Especially back then when he's on the Cavs. Come on. The MVP's always been a storyline. And I understand that. It's always been a storyline that people like to to take it down that track. And that's what the case was with Russell Westbrook with the triple-double. The case was with Harden when he averaged 36 a game. With Giannis when he was like fresh out and he's like this new guy and everybody wants to talk about Giannis. And with Steph Curry averaging 30 a game, doing things on the court that we've never seen. All of a sudden, he's the best ball handler probably in the league that year, not named Kyrie. And we're seeing all of this incredible, these feats done. And he wins a unanimous MVP, which obviously you can't change it. I just didn't agree with that being the case. And they go all the way to the finals and nobody's going to touch them. There's no way you can touch that team, right? You can't beat that team. They're up 3-1 against the Cavs. And the meme, like the meme says, they blew a 3-1 lead. The, the, the Warriors blew the 3-1 lead to the Cavaliers. They lost on that three-point shot from Kyrie Irving, who hit it from deep. And then the story goes that Draymond Green was circling the arena after the game, after they lost the finals and the Cavs had won and LeBron took the championship back to Cleveland. He was super excited and all of that stuff. And Draymond was driving around and he was calling Kevin Durant, who they had just beaten in the Western Conference finals to get to that point saying, we need you. And from there becomes the villainous, Golden State Warriors, the villains of the NBA. Because at that point, at least for me, I loved watching the Warriors. This is an organic team. They drafted their their stars. They drafted Steph. They drafted Clay. They drafted Draymond Green. I said that the same the same way about the Thunder with James Harden. They drafted all of those guys. I like it when it's organic. If you make the right front office moves and get a rookie and develop him into a star, I don't care how many stars you have. That's an awesome team. But when you get somebody on your team like the Heat did in 2010 with LeBron and and and, and Chris Bosh, that's when okay now like I'm not too big of a fan of you and what you're doing because you're trying to assemble this team to try to beat everybody else and it doesn't and I don't vibe with that. And so all of a sudden this Warriors team turns from this organic, fun to watch, exciting to watch team and they shift to the villains of the NBA because Kevin Durant pulls the biggest snake move of all time the biggest snake move of all time without a question in my head 
and he goes from the Thunder and he goes to the Warriors. And anybody like myself who is seeing this news break, I had a slight idea that it was going to happen, but I saw the news break and I thought to myself, the NBA's canceled. I would tell all my friends that the NBA's canceled, man. This isn't fun anymore. Who wants to watch this? Who would want to watch that? That's a terrible, terrible dynamic. Who wants to watch them obviously go to the finals again and then obviously play the Cavs because the, the East was so garbage and they're obviously going to beat the Cavs because now how's LeBron going to stop all four of them? And exactly how it happened. They go to the finals, they play LeBron, they beat LeBron. Then they go to the finals, they play LeBron, they beat LeBron. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, obviously this is what's going to happen. Kevin Durant gets his two championships Nobody really considers it to be a huge championship or an accomplishment because of what he did and how he did it. But he goes there and he wins both the finals MVPs because he is still the greatest scorer of all time. But it really just took away the fun in Golden State. It took away that 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 energy that was in Golden State that everybody loves and everybody everybody gravitated towards. And they won their championships and it was great. But when they were going against the Raptors in 2019, I can't think of one person who wanted to see them win that championship. You know, it was great to see that there was a little bit of turmoil. Draymond was starting to regret his decision. And and they lost. I mean, it was it was unfortunate that it had to be off of a, of injuries like that. And and you can't really you can't really congratulate the Raptors fans for for cheering Kevin Durant when he tore his Achilles. That wasn't really cool. But but at the end of the day, however you got to win, you got to win. I said it on the podcast I was on yesterday. You know, there's no excuses in the NBA. If you lose, you lose. It's just how it goes. And Kawhi Leonard was put on one of the greatest postseason performances that year that we've ever seen he stopped Giannis he stopped the the Sixers he hit the dagger against the Sixers and then he went he went into the finals against the Warriors and he absolutely just destroyed them you know and he and he he, they really they really took him to town game in game out and that was a Raptors team that nobody went into the season thinking they were a championship caliber team we knew that Kawhi was going to be uh, a star, but he wasn't really in it to be on the Raptors. It was a one and done kind of deal, and we all kind of knew it. But that one and done turned into a championship for Toronto. Good for them. And if the season ends, they're still going to be the reigning champions because we might not have a champion at the end of this season. But ultimately, after that year, KD's out, and Steph is now back into the driver's seat. He was hurt. So this whole team was pretty much hurt. They weren't going to have a good year this year. And a lot of people think this dynasty's over, but let's get real for a second, folks. You know, Clay was born in, I think, 1990 or maybe even 91. They're, him and Draymond are under 30. They're either, Draymond might be 30, but he's either 30 or 29. Steph's 32. And they're about to get a pretty good draft pick should the season end the way it was because they were so bad. So what does that mean? That means that this Warriors team is coming back next season with Steph, who's healthy now, Clay Thompson, who's healthy now, Draymond Green, who's now going to have Clay Thompson and Steph Curry, who are both healthy, playing the same way, the same style that they used to. The NBA now is a little bit different, which I'll go into here in a second, but they're going to be able to do what they used to do at a very high level. And no one's really going to be able to stop them the same way that it used to be. So I don't think this Warriors team is done. I think we got a couple more years coming out of them. And it's going to be a couple good battles, I think, personally, between them and the Lakers with LeBron James. 
But that's just my take on on how it's going to be. Now, when I say the NBA's changed, let's dive into it. Because Steph Curry came into a league of positional basketball where he was the one or the two and nobody really knew, and that's why he went to seven. And he is now in the NBA of positionless basketball where there's a guard and an off guard and a guy who's a three, but he also plays four sometimes, a guy who can guard one to four. There's a center who might be six foot ten. He also might be six foot eight, but he can shoot threes. I mean, there's a whole lot of different ways to do it, but ultimately that's what the NBA is starting to look like. He is the catalyst. He was the spearhead. He was the pioneer. He was the really first one to do this. He was the reason why it's necessary to do this today because he took the way the game was played and he changed it where now the Warriors can play small ball five out basketball. They don't need a big man because you have Draymond Green. I mean, if we want to talk about game changers, Draymond was a pretty big game changer in his own right because he was somebody who now made it okay for somebody who's six, seven to play power forward or center. If Sean Marion was around these days, I think he would be a dominant, dominant figurehead in the NBA because of what Draymond's able to do. Now we can see how it works. Steph Curry was someone who came into the NBA without a position. And because of that, he wasn't as sought after as people who had a defined position. He got so good at what he did without a position that instead of adapting to a specific position, he made it so everybody else can play positionless, at least on his team. And they got so good at positionless basketball that the remainder of the NBA now had to adapt to their positionless basketball because Steph Curry was positionless and it did not matter where you put him. One, two. That is mind-boggling. That is something that we have never seen before. When I was in high school and, and middle school, if anybody remembers a guy named Jimmer Fredette, he's, he's playing in China right now, but he, wa- he went to BYU. He's from close to my hometown. He's from the same area code as me. He went to BYU, and he became one of the most prolific scorers in, in college basketball history. And he did it as someone who was pulling up from 30, 35 feet which at that time was one of the most unheard of things that anybody's ever seen. Nobody was pulling up from deep like that. I remember one time watching SportsCenter when JJ was in college. JJ Redick, if you don't know, was a prolific scorer at Duke. And he pulled up from, I want to say, about a step in front of the the logo at, at Cameron Indoor. And he pulled up from there. And I remember on SportsCenter, they were talking about it because that was before they moved back the college three-point line. So they were showing the college three-point line, and then they drew on the teleprompter, or whatever it's called, they drew on the screen where the NBA three-point line was, and he was about six feet behind it, and they put it on the SportsCenter top 10 place. And this is something that Steph did every single day. He was pulling up from that, from that distance every single day. Nobody has ever been so good at scoring from deep that when he shoots from 35 feet out, you are more surprised when he doesn't make that shot. Think about that for a second. Ray Allen had one of the prettiest jump shots of all time. Ray Allen released the basketball at such a pretty angle. He got it out of his hands so quickly. And when he released that ball, you thought it was going in the basket. 
But I've seen games where Ray Allen has tried to pull up from 35 feet out, and when he shoots that ball, you don't think it's going in. It doesn't matter how far away Steph Curry was anywhere from the half-court line and, and in front. If that ball's coming out of his hands, you expect it to go in with that, with that pretty little wrist flick. And as the year started to progress and he started to do this with more frequency, we're now starting to see other guys adapting to this. Damian Lillard was talking, I want to say to Ernie Johnson recently, and said that he is comfortable shooting from half court, which is something that isn't the craziest thing for us to hear today. It's not the craziest thing for us to hear today, and that's because of Steph Curry. Steph Curry would pull up from 37 feet out, and it was acceptable. The reason why it wasn't done before that is because everybody is raised in, in, a, in a world where when you're in high school, you're in college, and when you're in the NBA, if you pull up from that distance, you're sitting on the bench for the rest of the game sometimes. You're not allowed to pull up from that kind of distance because it's not an acceptable shot. And he got so good at that shot that it became acceptable to do it for other people to do it, for other guys to say, hey, listen, see what he's doing? I can do it too. And again, I think Dame's probably the best example of this because he's capable of pulling up from wherever and doing it at a consistent level. And now what we're starting to see in 2019-2020 is the next wave of guards who grew up in a world where Steph Curry was prolific. You know, I grew up in a world where Peja Stojakovic was one of the best shooters and Ray Allen was the best shooter and, and Reggie Miller was one of the best shooters. And these are guys that were great shooters, but there's nothing close to what they see with Steph today. Where teams are shooting 33s a game. These are things that we didn't see back in the time in the in the 2000s and the 90s and all of that stuff. We didn't see it back then. But we're seeing guys come to the NBA like Trey Young. And Trey Young was born in 1999, which means by the time that Steph was drafted, Trey Young was 10 years old. By the time Trey Young was playing at a very high level, Steph was already in the league and he was already doing his thing. That season where Steph Curry won his first MVP, Trey was 16. And by that point, there's so much that can be taught into somebody's game at that time that you watch somebody like Steph, you see what he's able to do, and we're clearly seeing Trey Young doing what Steph was doing because he watched it and he replicated it. And we're going to keep seeing those things happening. We're going to keep seeing guys take step backs and step backs and steps back and all of that stuff. By the time that the 2030s roll around, we're going to see guys pulling up from half court. I guarantee it. As far back as you can pull up without a hand in your face, that's becoming the mindset today. Instead of trying to get past your defender Guys are rather thinking, I'm just going to take a step back and I'm going to pull up because then he won't, he won't be in front of me as close. I'm going to create distance backwards instead of forwards. And they're able to do it because they watch someone do it. I mean, that's really what the NBA and sports in general is all about. If, if it can be done, then you're going to have guys with that one-track mind who are going to replicate it because they see that it's possible. Steph Curry made this possible. And now we get to see a new wave come in, a new wave that gets that watched this happen and a new wave eventually that never knew an NBA that wasn't like this, a wave of players that come in at seven feet tall and they're shooting threes, a wave of players that come in at six foot three, six foot four, and they can be some of the most prolific scorers in the NBA. 
And it comes back to what I was saying when I saw Steph Curry at Davidson. Why is Steph Curry such a role model? Why is he such a face of the NBA right now? Because while he, yes, he's six foot three, he is very undaunting in his size. And when he does, is something that people can do if they're not giants. The NBA was reserved for giants for 60, 70 years. Nobody was able to make the league unless you were 6'5", 6'6", unless you had the kind of ability of an Allen Iverson, and nobody really has that. You can't get to the basket like AI. So what does Steph do? Steph says, if you are 6'5", 5'11", 5'10", and you have a quick release and a jump shot that you can step back now and get it over the defender who might be taller than you, you have a chance. You have an absolute chance in this league. And so now instead of having our role models like mine was when I was growing up, like a Tim Duncan who's seven feet tall, I'm never going to be the size of Tim Duncan. I'm never going to be Kobe's size. I'm never going to be Carmelo's size. These are the guys that I looked up to, and I I was never going to be like them. I couldn't. I didn't have it in my genes. Now guys are looking up to a Steph Curry who they look at him and they say, I can absolutely do everything that he does if I put my mind to it. And that's where the change is. That's where the NBA has shifted. And now we've turned to positionless basketball. And we saw the best example of it this year before the season ran out with Mike D'Antoni and the Rockets. And Mike D'Antoni, in my opinion, has always been an innovator to, to the NBA. He's always been a forward thinker. He's seen what the, the league can turn into, and he's he's been on the forefront of it. And I think he's on the forefront of this as well, where they get rid of Clint Capella. They don't have their 6'10 guy anymore. He's the only big man on the entire team. And now they're playing with a center who's 6'6", and they're playing zone out, five out, and that's the that's their entire one to five. And it works, and they get wins. And there was never a league before 2020 where that would ever work. But now we're seeing the shift happening. And the shift happens when somebody comes in and gets so good at what they do that the shift has to happen, right? And that that's what we saw with Steph. And that's something that we haven't seen on a level like that. But it's never happened this way. Every other time has been a case where the person who is making the change is so dominant at what they do because of their physical features that they had to change. Case in point, Wilt Chamberlain. They had to change rules for Wilt Chamberlain because he was so physically gifted. In college basketball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he was too big, he was too strong. He was too, it was too easy for him. So they had to change rules in college basketball for Kareem, Luel Cinder at the time. Shaquille O'Neal changed the way that people defended because you had to you had to put two bodies on him. It was just impossible to get around him. It was impossible to stop him entirely. But he was seven feet tall, 320 pounds. Kareem was seven foot four. Will Chamberlain was seven foot two. These guys are so large that you can't expect someone to look at them and be like, I can do that. Because you can't do it. If you're listening right now, you're probably not seven foot one, right? Exactly. Me neither. It's very, very rare to find what they were, to find someone who was like that. But it's significantly more common to find someone who looks like Steph Curry and does what he does. And if I'm a 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old, a middle schooler, whatever the case is, and I'm looking up at my heroes and I see Steph Curry there, I'm looking at him the entire time, and all I'm thinking is, I can do everything that he does if I work hard. 
and that's that's where the game that's where the change is that's the incredible thing about this right now is that the nba is now going to be accessible for people who might not grow to be six foot eight it's going to be better for you if you do but it's not going to be necessary as much so that's my take on steph that's uh that's that's how much of a of a, of a shift he has created if you like that like i said jump on apple pod and let me know leave a five-star review let me know what you think uh, you don't have to write a whole bunch. Just the the review itself is really important. Um, on my Instagram, you'll also see that I was on the Mark and Graham podcast, a great pod. These guys, a couple of my really good friends. And if you want to hear my takes on Michael Jordan and why he's the GOAT, I'm on that, doing that, talking about that. It's on YouTube. I'll put the link in the description of this particular episode. And y'all, other than that, I just wanted to reiterate how grateful I am that you listen, that you like this, that you're giving me positive feedback. I got a really good idea from one of the followers on the Instagram page from Brazil, actually, and he was talking about the best players never to win a ring. So I think I'm going to go into that next week. I'm actually really excited to talk about that because there's a whole lot on that list that I can really dive into in some detail. It might actually take two weeks to do it. So that's what you can look forward to. And if you are, if you are not following me yet on Instagram, go ahead and do it. Leave me messages. Let me know what you think. Let me know if there's anything you want to hear in the future, in the following weeks, I'm going to be getting some of my friends on this. Once this quarantine is over, it's going to be a lot easier. I don't really want to do Skype because I don't like the audio quality all the time on Skype. But once I'm able to go out and go different places with my microphones and stuff, I'll be getting a lot more people on the podcast so we can talk about it. I know it's usually easier to hear two people's take on the same thing. So that's what I'm going to be bringing for you in the future. All I need from you is to keep listening, keep pressing those five stars, tell your friends about me. And, you know, if you're not ugly, stay beautiful, right? That's what, that's how I take it. So until next time, y'all, my name is Nick Nasby. This is NBA Stories, and I appreciate you for tuning in.